Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department, which would like to remind you that spring enrollment is still open. Seats are available in courses ranging from media literacy and photography to news reporting and communication theory. You can even take a class with me, Rob Prince, on documentary filmmaking. Imagine that. There's more information at uaf.edu slash kojo. When I was in high school, I was convinced I wanted to be an airline pilot when I grew up. After years of studying and lessons and thousands of my parents' dollars, thanks again, Mom and Dad, I earned my pilot's license on the first day of school senior year. It should have opened up a whole new chapter in my life, but instead I realized that if I did end up becoming an airline pilot, I would have the lives of hundreds of people in my hands on a regular basis. That gave me a serious case of cold feet as a 17-year-old, and I decided video production would be a better career. I figured at least if I had a bad day at work, people wouldn't die. That turns out to have been a smart decision because I have since had many, many bad days at work. In this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, we're going to feature two stories of Alaskans having very bad days at work. First, we'll hear from Dawson Moore, who, thanks in part to a real mess of a cast and crew, produced the worst theatrical disaster in Alaskan history. By the time we got a week out from performing this play, I hated everybody in it. Um, the director was whiny, uh, that guy there, so many things. The only person in the play I didn't hate was the new guy who I didn't really know. Then we'll hear Skip Lipscomb tell his story of a pretty bad day he had while on the job mining for gold. My mom read Winnie the Pooh to those kids. I watched Yogi and Boo Boo. I fought fires for Smokey. I just didn't have a bad feeling about bears. Bad Day at Work, up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. Our first story comes from a Dark Winter Nights show we did in Valdez, Alaska in October 2018. Prince William Sound College down in Valdez called me that spring to see if I'd teach a class for them over the summer that would culminate in a storytelling event, much like the live shows we do with Dark Winter Nights in Fairbanks. They had heard such glowing things about the work I'd been doing with Dark Winter Nights that they just had to call me and see if I could replicate our success down there. Actually, that's not it at all. They'd never heard of Dark Winter Nights. They just found my name from a storytelling class I'd taught at the folk school up in Fairbanks. But at any rate, I agreed to do it, knowing there was a solid chance it could be a total disaster trying to teach this class and organize the event from so far away. To my honestly great surprise, it actually went incredibly well. We packed their venue, and every story was awesome. I'd love to take credit for that, but by now I've learned it doesn't take a genius to put together an awesome night of storytelling, as long as it's a bunch of Alaskans you're putting up there. And while I was down there, I did meet some Dark Winter Nights fans in Valdez, so here's a shout-out to all of our friends in Valdez. I love your town, rabbits and all. And here's a shout-out to all my friends at P-Dub. The first story we're going to share from that Valdez show comes from Dawson Moore, who has lived there since 2003 while working at the Prince William Sound Community College and serving as the coordinator of the Last Frontier Theater Conference. He was a student in my storytelling class while also being one of the key players in organizing the event down there. Here's Dawson Moore. 
1996, I uh, staged the greatest disaster in Alaskan theater history. Uh, I had just taken over being the artistic director of a small theater company called We Call It ART, uh, which was sort of an honor for me, I thought, at that point. I was very young, and I was confident in that way that only a person in their 20s can be confident. Like, you don't really know what you're doing, but you're doing it. Um, and uh, we were in our second year of running it, and it was our first year having a real season. We had four shows lined out. We were going to do them all. We were performing in the upstairs of the Kaladi Brothers on Brayton up in Anchorage. And our first show went fine, did it. Second show was the only show of the season that I wasn't going to direct. And it was a, a play called Chris, by Christopher Durang called Beyond Therapy. And um, Beyond Therapy is a funny play about uh, therapy back from when it was sort of new to America that everybody was beginning to go see counselors and therapists. And um, uh, it was going terribly. Uh, we just didn't get enough people to audition, so we had to keep sort of, we'll cast it in a minute and ask all our friends and beg around. We had to uh, uh, get push back our performance date twice in order to just get a full cast together, and we finally did. And it uh, continued to go terribly, from problems with spaces to personality conflicts. By the time we got a week out from performing this play, I hated everybody in it. <laughs> um, the director was whiny, uh, that guy there, so many things. The only person in the play I didn't hate was the new guy who I didn't really know. Um, he was playing the lead, his name was Dave Klutz. Um, and um, so, all right, we finally get to opening night, finally. Because in all theater, when you're having a horrible process in the rehearsal, eventually you get to do the show. And then all the things kind of fade away, and you're doing the show. And even if you're doing a bad show, you don't really know that. You're just doing a show, and you like acting. Um, so we get to opening night, and uh, we're in Upstairs and Kaladi Brothers, and it's a, it's a massive turnout. We have a total of 12 people there, um, including reviewers from the Anchorage Daily News and the Anchorage press. Uh, I'm sitting uh, by the door uh, because I've had to be drafted to act in the play. I'm also managing the house and taking tickets. <laughs> like you do. So uh, I'm sitting there and the show starts and in the middle of the first scene, Dave Klutz goes up on his lines. He gets a very frustrated look in his face and he storms out by me out the door. And the woman on stage with him goes, Bruce! His character's name, and then runs off after him, and then turns back to me, and she's like, I'm like, <laughs> so the actors backstage do a good job. They start the second scene, even though it's you know five minutes early. And I, once the scene starts, and let's you know we're in a room, so it's hard to be surreptitious. But I sneak out and I go down the stairs, and I get out into the parking lot just in time to see Dave's truck driving away. <laughs> Literally, me going, no. No, come back! So I go back upstairs, and they're still doing the play, and I'm like, oh, maybe it was somebody else's truck. And, uh, and so the second scene ends, and the third scene begins, which he's supposed to be in, and the woman on stage uh, says her first line, send in the next porpoise, please. One, two, Three, oh, rats, five. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid that our lead actor has suffered from a severe case of stage fright and we will not be able to go on this evening. And everybody laughs. <laughs> Dawson's so wacky. No, I'm serious. Here's your money. <laughs> so I start handing everybody back their money. And it's a strange situation. There's only like, you know, at this point, it was 12, but you know, one less. Uh, so the reviewers awkwardly leave and then some friends of the lead actress in the play go, well, we were really coming to see Francis, so can you just do her scenes? <laughs> uh, okay. 
And so we do her scenes. I go to the library where the director is working. She couldn't be there. I, I always remember her looking up and going, wondering how it is that I'm there in the middle of our play. Um, and then we all go out for, you know, village in and shaking and tremors and that kind of thing. And, and uh, they convinced me, Dawson, we can't have him back. Right? We can't just do the show now. He left. I'm like, right, right, right. So we find another actor to cover it, but we can't even find time to rehearse him to get him ready to read the part in the play. So, much to our chagrin, we cancel the show. And uh, then after we cancel the show, Kaladi Brothers goes, yeah, you guys weren't really like bringing us business. You were mostly just filling our upstairs with junk and stuff, so let's just call it good here. And like, oh, okay. At which point, me and my two other partners who'd been very absent during this process all looked at each other like, does anyone like producing theater? <laughs> no, me either, right. So uh, in the space of a few days, I went from being someone who felt that he was one of the masters of the universe to being someone who had been very publicly humiliated. As I said, there were reviewers there uh, from, the, uh, from the press and the news. The Anchorage Daily News ran an article called Short Review. <laughs> The Anchorage Press actually called me about their article. They wanted to run an article called Klutz Drops Play. <laughs> and very nobly I told them, no, 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 no. He's in a lot of pain right now. Uh, I don't think that's appropriate. Like three days later, I'm like, I can't believe I didn't tell them to nail that guy. Um, but uh, it was the first time in my life when I discovered that the most horrible things that happen to you are often in the long term the best things that happen to you. I then went to my instructor and said, hey, how many credits until I graduate? And they're like, 12. And I'm like, I've had 12 credits to go to graduating for like three years. <laughs> okay. So I, I finished my degree and I moved to California and I had a lot of great experiences that one day qualified me to come back here and do the job I do here. So, you know, it was horrible. I've never been depressed like that again or before. Uh, but anyway, that's the greatest theatrical disaster in Alaskan history. Thank you. Dawson Moore. This is Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. Let the bass kick. Hey, guess what? We have our date lined up for our next spring 2019 show already. So mark down your calendars for March 9th at 7 p.m. in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. We'll be working on the storyteller lineup over the next few weeks, so make sure to submit your story at darkwinternights.com. That's where you can also find a link to our Facebook page and sign up for our e-newsletter, so you're always in the loop with all things Dark Winter Nights. We'll see you on Saturday, March 9th. Skip Lipscomb is a captain of Sea and Sky. He's a licensed master mariner and airline transport pilot who lives on his parents' original homestead here in Fairbanks. He told this story about a particularly bad day at work at our November 2018 live event in Herring Auditorium. Here's Skip Lipscomb. I, I started with a uh, it started with a note on the tape to my plane at Phillips Field, now part of the Johansson Expressway. 
And it said, will you fly for us? We're opening a gold mine and we need a pilot. They pulled out big nuggets at the coffee store and I thought, wow. I, I got the fever right there. <laughs> I imagined to be having a big poke at the end, but at the end I got two vials, one for the plane and one for myself. The guys who um, were miners there, they um, got the same. They, the guy, the management said, we didn't get any gold. You need to have that kind of in writing before you, you go to do it. The mine in 1991, it was just 80 miles south of here, in the Alaska, foothills of the Alaska Range, between two big foothills, was the number one producer in the interior in 1991. There was lots of gold there. Um, when I voiced my displeasure at this um, settle-up dinner, they said, well, you want to go back and find your own? Go ahead. So I did. And I... I, w I went with a friend who uh, has a history of gold mining in his family, Dell Johnson, and, and my wife. Um, which was, we weren't married then, but we got married. <laughs> the three of us, every hour we managed to shovel into this box, got an ounce of nugget gold. An ounce an hour is pretty good. It was $2, $216 an ounce in 1978, which is when this was. That was significant money. A nugget, by the way, is anything that you can hold over the pan. You drop it, and it goes tink. If it doesn't make a sound, it's dust. This was all nugget gold. We had uh, just a mile up from the camp where the airport was, was uh, our little tent we had for a shelter, and we had a Briggs & Stratton pump in the creek, this Gold King Creek, pumping water through a box, five feet long with astroturf in the bottom. When we were done for the day at cleanup, we would pull out the, the riffles, which were just one-inch pieces of wood, and roll up this lawn and, and put it in a, a galvanized tub and shake out what was left in the bottom of the box. We'd pan that out, and there would be a big gold smile in the bottom of that pan. It was just ridiculous. Th this story, though, is about a hat. Kinda. My family had a, a farm in Missouri. I was uh, on this farm um, managing it. We had longhorn cattle and buffalo, and I thought that qualified me for a western hat. At a feed store, there was a huge pile of Stetsons, these boxes of Stetson hats. And on top of the box was um, uh, seven, and that's my size. And I put it on, and I'm looking in this mirror, and I'm thinking... Wow, I don't look too bad. And from the back of the store, the salesman says, You ain't big enough to wear that hat, son. <laughs> well, I whipped out a hundred bucks, bought it, and wore it home. But then I parked it because I looked ridiculous in this hat. <laughs> it was a big John Wayne commemorative Texas Calvary World War... <laughs> But at the mine, I felt like I could get away with wearing it. <laughs> and I had a, a Randall knife, a big 
seven-inch Randall number one knife. You have to wait two years if you want one made for you. All the miners wore 44 Magnums, Rugers. They asked me why I didn't have a gun. And I told them that I was going to Daniel Boone my bear. <laughs> the bears in this part of the country are called Ursus, Octors, Octos, Horribilis. <laughs> for good reason. But in my history, um, I um, had a teddy bear. My mom read Winnie the Pooh to those kids. I watched Yogi and Boo Boo. <laughs> I fought fires for Smokey. I just didn't have a bad feeling about bears. <laughs> I volunteered to walk back from camp to get a jar of jam out of my plane that I knew was there because I had um, a jar of jam and a box of um, pilot bread for my survival box. And as I'm walking down the trail, it's, a, it's a, in September, I've already flown all the miners out, and um, just us there, just three, three people. I'm walking down the trail, a mild camp, and the leaves are on the ground, and it's slightly kind of misting. The ground was really kind of wet, and it was, um, it was kind of slick. But I had tied on my dad's. I, I sold them out of his closet. Uh, Converse All-Star, Chuck Taylors. Real popular with kids now, which is kind of ridiculous because they're just like putting your foot in a plank. But I liked them because they were size 11s. I wear a 10, but I could put my boot socks on. But I didn't have to take my boot socks off to tie them on. So I'm walking down in these big shoes, kind of like a clown-like. And I detect a little movement over here across the creek to my left. I look over there, and it's a, it's a grizz. It's, it's a beautiful shade of brown. It's leaning up. It's a, it's a male, I can tell that. It's leaning up against the bank across the creek. It doesn't see me. Its eyes are closed. It's humming. It's, it's playing with itself. I could have made my escape right then, but instead, I'm, I'm staring at this thing. All of a sudden, its eyes snap open. It goes from blissed out to pissed off, just like that. It does this, this amazing athletic feat of jumping up onto the bank behind it. I, I can't even imagine how I, I can. I, I saw it, but I can't. It's hard to comprehend. And, and all of a sudden, it looks like a Minuteman missile coming out of the silo. 
this big brown furry thing is heading straight for me, arcing over the, over the creek. I know that you're supposed to hold your, stand your ground. I tell this story to kids at school, and I tell them, stand your ground. <laughs> because if you run, you're prey. You don't run from a bad dog, you don't run from a bear, especially one that can do 40 in like two seconds. But tell that to my legs. Usain Bolt that had nothing on me. They say that the best bilge pump is a scared man with a bucket. The fastest runner has got the converses on. He's got the bear behind him. I don't know what happened, but I ran right past my plane. I couldn't slow down. So I made a big turn, I came back to my plane. In my plane was a 12 gauge. I loaded it with bear slug, bear slug, bear slug. And I went stalking back up the trail for that bear. I was a little bit upset. <laughs> Forgot about the jam. I didn't see the bear. I'm glad I didn't see the bear. I have never wanted to shoot a bear. I don't hunt moose or anything. I, I just don't like to kill stuff. But, but I was ready then. And in the trail was my hat. I had to run right off underneath my hat. I didn't think about my hat. I didn't think about my knife. I was going to Daniel Boone my bear. Ha. Never entered my mind. But my hat, my beautiful hat, that hat was disgusting. <laughs> the bear had stopped. I saw where it had slid to a halt. The, the hat saved me. But what happened to the hat was, I tell kids that uh, the bear did a Mexican, <laughs> Mexican hat dance on it. But I really don't know what the bear did to it besides clawing it and chewing it. He kind of slimed it. It was disgusting. I didn't pick it up. I boosted it into the creek and it floated off. Back at the camp, I said, hey, we are out of here. I was spooked. In fact, I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> I think it's called PTSD. <laughs> the next year, and I made a better deal with these guys. There was a different group in there. That other group, they didn't get the, the least renewed. But there was other guys, the other miners there. I got cash for every flight. And um, I got friendly. I liked hanging out with miners. When I landed one time, that they did a special thing. They rang the bell, and everybody came. And um, they had a little presentation for me. 
There was a bottle of um, blackjack, which uh, if the FAA is in here, I waited eight hours till I got back in the plane. <laughs> One of the miners had found my hat. It was lodged into a, a willow downstream, and it had uh, gone through the winter. It was clean, you could touch it then. <laughs> the cook kind of steamed it, and uh, they kind of blocked it back into shape, and that salesman, when I bought his head, he might have been right. <laughs> I'm not big enough to wear this hat. Skip Lipscomb. again for listening to this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. This episode was edited by Ryan Peterson and myself, Rob Prince. Skip Lipscomb's audio was recorded by John Huff of Alaska Universal Productions. Story consultation by Lori Neufeld. Don't forget our next big Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska live event will be Saturday, March 9th at 7 p.m. in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. We're looking for storytellers. You could submit your true story from Alaska at darkwinternights.com. That's also where you can link to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash darkwinternights. You can also sign up for our e-newsletter and keep up to date on all things Dark Winter Nights. We'll see you Saturday, March 9th at 7 p.m. in Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince. Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department, which would like to remind you that spring enrollment is still open. Seats are available in courses ranging from media literacy and photography to news reporting and communication theory. You can even take a class with me, Rob Prince, on documentary filmmaking. Imagine that. There's more information at uaf.edu slash kojo.